The Lord be with you. Welcome to worship. Um, we're going to do some lifting today. We're going to, uh, some, it's almost heavy lifting. This hymnal I want to introduce to you, uh, Santo, 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 Holy, Holy, Holy. Uh, it came out right before the pandemic. Um, and I just want to share some resources with you. We could, uh, for the next couple nights, we're actually going to have the book, not because I, I love books, uh, but not because we have to hold books, but if we only print material for you, you don't see how it fits into the whole. So I want you to be able to kind of handle this for some bilingual singing today um, in Spanish and English, uh, as we did yesterday. And tomorrow is going to be our Brazilian night. We're going to sing in Portuguese uh, and English. Uh, this is primarily um, Spanish and English uh, book. The other thing, uh, I kind of gave you a heads up that we're going to explore bilingual singing this week. But we're also, I love the Psalms, and so every service is going to uh, sneak a Psalm in somewhere, all right? And that works really well bilingually as well. Um, I, just looking at the service today, we will have communion, and uh, um, Dr. Nancy Gross will preside at the table, and she'll give instructions for that. We're a small enough uh, group that we can just kind of follow uh, Nancy's lead. And it's, you're going to preside at the table. Yes. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so uh, I, right after the message today, we had this yesterday where we had coming out of the, the preached word, the wordless prayer through the saxophone. I'm so glad Brian is back with us tonight. And he, so let that, before you hear Lizette, and I'm so, so glad Lizette is here as well to lead us in some of our bilingual singing in um, but before we hear Lisa, just pray with the sound of the saxophone. Um, and I will say that those two songs, 609 and 610, they're consecutive. But once we're done singing 609 in Spanish, we're just going to flip the page and without a break go right into the next song, I Have Decided to Follow Jesus. We're going to start somewhat in a similar fashion. Um, this beautiful setting of Psalm 42, a verse of Psalm 42 Jeanne Senor, and uh, we're going to hear it first sung by Lisette. Um, it's 380, you can open up to it. But I also, um, after the reading of the opening sentences, we will do a little bit more of singing at 380, Jeanne But then without skipping a beat, we're going to stand up and sing, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. So you might want to have one finger already at 394, although I bet you pastor preachers know, come thou fount of every blessing by heart. Let's, yes. Sorry, is there, um, I see that it's Is it it's, it's an ecumenical Protestant hymnal for, um, so the GIA had already published a Catholic hymnal for bilingual worship, and so this is um, geared toward many denominations um, in the Protestant uh, tribe of the church. Thank you. Let's prepare our hearts to worship uh, first by listening and then by singing Genome. We'll remain seated.
Our scripture today comes from 1 Peter 1, 17 through 21. If you invoke as father the one who judges all people impartially according to their deeds, live in reverent fear during the time of your exile. You know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. He was destined before the foundation of the world, but was revealed at the end of the ages for your sake. Through him, you have come to trust in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are set on God. This is the word of the Lord. Inheritance. Well, this concept of inheritance wasn't something that I grew up thinking about in a monetary sense. As a kid, my parents never told me that we'd get a portion of their home or split their assets among family members. They didn't talk to me about their wills, though they did tell me where they wanted to be buried. Instead, my parents treated my brother and me as their inheritance. How we turned out, the fruit we bore, the impact we made as second-generation Korean Americans, that would determine their return on investment. Their love, of course, was not conditional. It was unconditional, and I felt that. I still do. But the sacrifice they made for us did impact my decisions. Familism, or a way of understanding and living out human relationships and responsibilities, it prioritizes family before self, interdependence, and right relationships, and it shapes one's identity as a for many immigrant children. Parents and children have this lifelong commitment to one another surviving and thriving. So this is why I never quite understood the logic that some of my friends had that once they turn 18, they're out of there. They're adults. They're independent. They're their own person. Nor did I understand this idea of adulthood as being free from the parental expectations and needs of parents, even from their demands. So in the section before the passage I just read, 1 Peter demands holiness from God's children, and his demands can feel somewhat strident or stringent and downright intimidating. You see, in Greco-Roman society, it was expected that children obey their fathers. So the author of 1 Peter actually expects the same from God's children. However, he doesn't simply command believers to do what God tells them to do, but rather offers a theological basis for his ethical ethical exhortations, and it's based largely on Leviticus 19. God's children need to know God's character because who God is shapes how they are to live. God the Father is holy, so God's obedient children must also be holy. Now, interestingly, while the letter emphasizes the fatherhood of God, it doesn't use son language to describe believers many of whom were Gentiles. This absence seems striking, especially because he speaks of their heavenly inheritance bestowed upon them by God the Father. Peter does this, I think, in order to emphasize that their relationship to God the Father as his heirs, as his children, as his people, is not based on biological blood ties, but on the blood of Christ. It's through Christ's resurrection from the dead and ransoming blood that they are one, that they become the household of God and the people of God who can invoke 
God as Father. Now, the only other place where the word fathers occurs in reference to human beings, actually, it's the only place, there's no other place, is in 118, which I read. When Peter asserts that believers have been ransomed from the profitless ways of life inherited from the fathers, the fathers being more literal there. So this Greek, Greek adjective for inherited from the fathers, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament or in the Greek Old Testament. And when we do find it in Hellenistic lit, it has a positive connotation. But first, Peter casts this inheritance in entirely negative light. Make no mistake, this is a bold, disruptive thing to say. To dismiss as futile or dead end the entire way of life handed down from the fathers is a big deal. It is to reject the very values and commitments and norms that gave them meaning and coherence. Now, notice how the focus of redemption here is not on individual sin, but rather on corporate sins. Essentially, 1 Peter is saying that Christ's blood has liberated them from the sins of the fathers by disinheriting them from narratives and behaviors that prevent them from a life of holiness and obedience to God the Father. God's people don't just sin because of their personal decisions. They sin also because of the inculcated, deep-seated, systemic sins perpetuated in their histories, passed down from their forefathers, and still impacting and influencing them in the present. So what about us? What sins of the fathers do we need to be ransomed from today? What narratives need to be rewritten? Some of the core myths or ideologies of Christian nationalism are that America is a uniquely Christian nation founded on Christian values. Another, that America's founding fathers who penned our documents such as the Declaration of Independence and the US Constitution were divinely inspired. Or that the success of the American experiment and the rise of the US as a world power is part of God's plan and purpose for the nations. And that the government should thus privilege and promote these original Christian values as policy in the public sphere. I'll note that these narratives have been not only passed on by Christian pastors, leaders, and politicians, but actually crafted with their help. The clarion call to make America great again and restore things as the way they were have undeniable racial underpinnings. Laura Kirby puts it well when she notes, quote, not just any past will do. Leaders of the Christian right are not interested in peer-reviewed history that critically examined issues like slavery, religious diversity, or imperialism. They are interested in nostalgic accounts of the nation's Christian heritage that justified a privileged place for white conservative Christianity in American laws, schools, and culture, end quote. This nostalgic, ahistorical narrative casts Christians, particular Christians, as political and cultural exiles or victims when they are not at the helm, while assuming that they should not be outsiders as all, 
This is very different from what we talked about yesterday, if you can recall. Instead, their rightful places as insiders and as heads of this nation's institutions. This ideology fuels white Christian nationalism and makes malcontents into exiles and good guys with guns into saviors. Furthermore, and now I'm quoting from Philip Gorski and Samuel Perry, quote, the idea of a Christian nation which is founded by people in favor of our way of life has not only become culturally inextricable, inextricable from right Christian culture, but also from the rugged individualism that adherents associate with free market capitalism. So it's thus no wonder that a verse like 1 Peter 1.18 and 19 seems more applicable to heathen foreign nations who hold un-American values, commitments, and norms than it does to white American Christians who determine what it like, looks like to be a nation under God. Such words have been misconstrued and misused to strip native peoples of their ancestral riches and to steal their lands for their own nation building. Such words have been weaponized to justify the forced migration and enslavement of Africans in the transatlantic slave trade to make possible their own way of life. Of course, not all Americans have been beholden to these myths. James Baldwin notes, the American Negro has the great advantage of never having believed the collection of myths to which white Americans cling. That their ancestors were all freedom-loving heroes. That they were born into the greatest country the world has ever seen. Or that Americans are invincible in battle and wise in peace. That Americans have always dealt honorably with Mexicans and Indians and all other neighbors or inferiors. Now, I dare say that those who have been oppressed by such ideologies and narratives have the interpretive edge in understanding the message of 1 Peter. But they also have the interpretive challenge of reading verses 18 through 19, not as a further degradation and disavowal of the ways of their ancestors, but as a reminder, a reminder for all of us, that there is good in every culture that can be promoted, yes, but also that there is no single culture, ethnicity, race, or nation that can be equated with the kingdom of God. While some governments serve laws and order better than others, all governing authorities are subject to corruption and to the abuse of power. They are subject to sin. Thus, while we do our best to work for a more and just equitable society for all, we have to be careful not to equate the kingdom of God with the empires of this world, including the one in which we claim as home. So rather than strive to make all America one nation under God, perhaps Peter is inviting us to embody God's holiness as obedient children, as a people who were called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. Why? So that we may proclaim so that we may live into, so that we may embody the mighty acts of the one who called us. So what then shall we do? How then shall we live? What is our response? Rather than take back what is, quote, ours, or whitewash America's past 
in ways that perpetuate the myth that America is a Christian nation and that certain Christians are their rightful heirs. Christ's ransoming blood liberates us from the sins of the fathers that elevates one ethno-religious tradition, one race, one tribe, one nation state over and against others. Christ's blood redeems us to serve a God who decenters and destabilizes the present order in order to bring about a salvation yet to be revealed. As obedient children who invoke God as Father, 1 Peter invites us to confess the sins of our fathers, of our ancestors, of our forefathers. As a holy nation of God, I think we actually need to live as a people without a nation. This doesn't mean we disengage from life in the public sphere or withdraw from our civic duties, nor does this mean that we don't cast our votes or lead protests or serve in public office. That is not what it means. It doesn't even mean you can't be patriotic and love your country. But it does mean that we cannot be nationalistic and pledge our loyalty and allegiance to our own ethnocultural tribe at the expense and over and against the rights of fellow citizens, foreigners, resident aliens, and the undocumented. It means we cannot idealize and work to protect the power of white Christian Americans to save the soul of this nation. Rather, as my dinner partner, Ms. Uh, Pastor Lillian, said, we got to do the work. We got to do the work of unbinding the strongmen of white supremacy and nationalism. It takes work. People of God, Christ's blood has redeemed us so that every tribe and nation be, can become a member of God's household. We are one household. We are sister and brother. One people, one church, not because we share nationalistic, territorial, political, ideological alliances, or because we have the same biological blood running through our veins. No, it is because we share the blood of Christ. We share this same confession and this same praise. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue us from danger, interposed his precious blood. Amen.
Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Whoever comes to me shall never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. All those who come to me will never hunger. This is the Lord's table. We invite all those who love the Lord and seek to put their trust in him to come to this feast which he has prepared. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are all people who put their trust in him. Let us attend now to the words of the institution as they are given to us by the Apostle Paul. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that on the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. For, Paul adds, as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us pray. Holy God, we praise you and give you thanks that death could not contain you. You broke forth from the grave in the raising of Jesus, and from the darkness of the tomb triumphed the light of life. The light has entered the world once and for all, and darkness cannot, will not, ever overcome it. Born of Mary, Christ Jesus shares our life. Eating with sinners, he welcomes us. Guiding his children, he leads us. Visiting the sick, he heals us. Dying on the cross, he saves us. Risen from the dead, he gives new life. Living with you, he prays for us. At the table tonight, as at every celebration of the feast, we, we recall Jesus' passion with wonder and love. We remember his death. We proclaim his resurrection. We await his coming in glory. Gracious God, pour out your Holy Spirit upon us and upon these your gifts of bread and wine, that the bread we break and the cup we bless may be the communion of the body and the blood of Christ. By your Spirit, lift us up and unite us with the living Christ. We lift to you our own lives and loves and more. We lift to you our communities, our nation, and the globe. We lift up to you the people of the world, especially the hungry, the terrified, the refugee, the political prisoner, those who have never known peace in their lifetimes. And we lift to you those who are closest to us, who we know and love 
and who we pray for your special presence in their lives. Wrap all these and us into your gracious plan to one day, someday, unite all people and all things in the gracious love of Christ, whether it is on this side of time or the next. We need you to be God. We trust you, our God. Until that day when all things in heaven and on earth are united in the grace of Christ, we call on you for guidance and strength. When the sun sets and our ministry is done, may our efforts be found worthy of your mercy and grace through Jesus Christ our Lord, who taught us when we pray to say, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial and deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come, let us share the feast. We will ask for those on the outside to come first. We'll be serving in front of the table and take your elements of gluten-free bread and grape juice. Return to your seats and take the elements when you are ready.
Let us pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for feeding us with the body and blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we who share his body live his risen life. We who drink this cup bring life to others. We whom the Spirit lights give light to the world. Keep us firm in the hope you have set before us so that we and all your children shall be free and the whole earth live to praise your name through Christ our Lord. Amen.
bless you in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who has ransomed you from the profitless ways passed down from the fathers, who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Now to God who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, all that we ask, think, and imagine, to God be the glory in the church by Jesus Christ from generation to generation. Amen. Go and be emboldened and empowered by Christ's blood. Go and sin no more. Amen. <laughs> now let's pass the peace. Peace of Christ be with you.